Well, hey, all you guys, it's New Year's morning. I wish you all a happy and prosperous 2022. You know, like everybody else, I feel like I lost the last year or year and a half or so. And uh, but the podcast kept me going. I kept doing one about every week, most every week. And and I enjoyed all your emails, your comments on the Gangland Wire Facebook page, my interaction with you, the website. People make comments on the website. I like all those comments. I like that interaction with you guys. Uh, got some emails, uh, some people we ended up talking on the phone a little bit. I got story suggestions from people. And any other way that you sent me good wishes during the year, you know, whether it be your Venmo or your PayPal. Uh, which is, I don't really do this for the money, but I, it, it is something that, that makes it, uh, uh, makes it easier to do. Uh, I'll be quite honest about that. And, and, you know, it keeps me uh, from having to pay anything out of pocket for all these different little things that you got. Uh, but the main thing is, is I got a lot of really good, solid listeners that, that care about the work, care about the history. And that's what makes it all worthwhile to me. You know, over the last year, I was able to finish my third documentary film, Ballot Theft, Burglary, Murder, and Cover-Up. I especially thank every one of you wiretappers who invested your time. If you lived here in Kansas City, you acted as extras and money. Uh, many people gave me money and a little deal I had to give you credit at the end of the movie, and it made this a much better, higher quality production. I got a lot of compliments on it. Uh, as you know, I'm not able to get it up as a rental on uh Amazon because they changed the rules and you can't get an independent film up there anymore unless you've got a theatrical release. But be that as may, I put it up as a $1.99 streaming version on my uh, website. I figured out how to do that. Uh, yeah, my, this last year, my, my good friend and fellow filmmaker, Terrence O'Malley, who did kind of the quintessential overview of the Kansas City mob, Black Hand Straw Man. It's a two hour and I think 17 minute uh, home that that tells you more about the entire history of the Kansas City mob than you ever wanted to know. Uh, we were able to do the third annual Mafia Film Festival here at the Crown Center in Kansas City, and I was I premiered Bout Theft uh, last November at the film festival. Uh, we're going to change that up a little bit this next year. Uh, I think we're going to move to another theater and probably try to do some more uh, panel discussions, get some authors in here, because there's only so many movies about the Kansas City mob. Uh, maybe we should open it up to other mafia documentaries, but that's uh, that's more work than I really want to get into, I think. Uh, we're almost back to normal here, uh, and it just feels so good. I appreciate every PayPal and Venmo donation more than you'll ever know. Um, I appreciate every all you guys that donate. You know, if you give me an email, I'll put you on the list for... Usually, almost every month, I do a Zoom call with with people who have supported the podcast. Uh, some of the highlights over the last year were that I liked were the uh, uh, investigation into the Montreal Mafia crime families with Cam Robinson. Uh, we did a four part series on the Pizza Connection, and what I liked about that, I was able to talk to one of the guys that was directly involved with the Pizza Connection that nobody really knows. He was originally from Kansas City, FBI agent. Uh, Lee Plossie, who's uh, retired out of the Chicago office. Uh, he was the guy who uh, was good friends with Judge Falcone, who was killed. He, he made the connection between the Italian government and the Italian federal police and the FBI to start sharing information, which really was a big step in taking down the, the pizza connection 
uh, heroin, cocaine trafficking case, that and Tommaso, uh, all of a sudden I lost his last name, uh, turned in, uh, turned and, and came in and, and talked about some of those guys. Um, the Elaine Smith interview, the FBI agent who was the control who turned Ken Ito after uh, the attempted murder of Ken Ito up in Chicago. I like that one. Uh, one of my personal favorites, personally, was my good friend Steve St. John uh, and Joe Pistone on Lefty Ruggiero called Would You Want to Share a Cell with Lefty Ruggiero? Uh, my last interview with my recently deceased friend, Denny Griffin, uh, may he rest in peace, as a tribute to our other friend, Frank Culotta, may he rest in peace. I knew both these guys pretty well from some early work I did in this uh, mob entertainment business, shall we say. We all, Denny Griffin and Frank Culotta and I all took part in the Las Vegas uh, mob con that they had two or three years in a row. Then our good friend, Larry Henry, uh, tried to to re, uh, revitalize it and put his own money into it. But it's just too hard. I tell you, putting on those mob cons is, it, you need a company to do that and, and investors. And so it's tough. Uh, Frank and I, Frank, uh, uh, Larry Henry and I sometimes talk about trying to do that again. I've done that on a small level, uh, small basis here in Kansas City, but it's, it's hard to do that on a nationwide basis. Uh, you know, I guess my most popular uh, most interesting interview was my two-part interview with Michael DeLeonardo. It started out as one part, and then I broke it up into two. Uh, got it on YouTube. Got the most hits ever on YouTube. Uh, for me, anyhow. Uh, Gangland Wire 2022. This next year, I'll, of course, continue researching stories and finding great guests. And I like these guests out of the mouths of the men who did it. Uh, the ones that lived the life of a mobster or a copper or an agent who investigated the mob. Uh, always feel free to send me suggestions for guests and mob stories. May or may not do it, may or not, not be able to get the guests, but you know, I, I appreciate the suggestions. I appreciate anybody's input into the show. I want to make this your show, the listener's show. It's not just my show, it's, it's all of our show, all of ours show. Uh, I plan on spending a little more time with my YouTube channel, Gangland Wire, until this last year. Now, I really only looked at this as a method to kind of entice folks to my audio podcast, because that's where I started be six years ago this next spring. And I've learned that many folks watch YouTube exclusively, and they don't ever go to the podcast apps. As a matter of fact, there's just another, as big an audience out there. Uh, that are YouTube exclusive. And as you all know, if you go on YouTube, there is a ton of content, uh, especially, uh, and, and you got the big ducks that have really brought a lot of people into the mob world on YouTube. And that's Michael Francese and Sammy, the bull Gravano. They're huge. Um, but I, I plan on just putting a little more energy into that and making sure I have something to go up with regular regularity uh i'm planning on another motorcycle to a mob sites you know i did one of of uh chicago with my friend kate kozel and we're, uh, we did one before that of bonnie and clyde sites down through the mid-south well this spring hopefully by april or by may i'm not sure which right now we're headed south through hot springs arkansas where that was a prohibition era resort for many mobsters throughout the united states and only madden had uh, decamped from new york uh, uh, in trouble and set up uh, 
shop down in hot springs. So there's a little bit of mob history and there's a gangster museum down there. I have not seen it. So we're going to go to that and we'll go on South into Louisiana, uh, end up in new Orleans. We'll look at mob sites all along the way. Uh, I've got Ron Rossin is coming up with mob sites and I think he's going to be down there and maybe we can interview him uh, like we did up in Chicago with Mike Byrne. So we got a big year plan and here's a, here's an extra episode that I put together and just found it that I'd done some research on it and I, I knocked it out and, and I'm putting this up as a little new year's present for you guys and, and uh, happy new year. Uh, I wish you a happy and prosperous 2022. Thanks folks. Part of February, I'm going to be down in uh, Cocoa Beach. It's not all the way far south around the freeze, what they call the freeze line, where it's, it's going to be warm, reasonably warm. It'll get a little bit cool a few times. We, we were down there in uh, uh, Homosassa Springs last year. We went to Texas the year before for part of February. I'm 76 years old. And, and I tell you what, I'm, I'm, my wife can work from home and I don't really, I can work from anywhere with the podcast. And that's about all I'm doing anymore. So uh, anybody wants to play golf or just meet for coffee uh, or a shot and a beer, oh, I, uh, uh, get hold of me. Uh, you, there's a jillion ways to get hold of me. I'm not going to go through it. And it's off my website. It's the easiest way. And Facebook, uh, Gangland Wire podcast page. So so get hold of me and we will we'll play some golf or, or we'll just sit around and, and chew the fat, as we say, or shoot the bull. My dad used to go downtown uh, periodically on a Saturday night. And I asked mom, well, what's he do down there? And she said, oh, they shoot the bull down there. <laughs> I think I could think of was shooting the bull. But anyhow, uh, get hold of me and, and we will uh, we'll meet up. Thanks a lot, folks. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hey, all you wiretappers out there, and welcome back to the studio of Gangland Wire. I found in my old uh, files something I did. I, I was researching stories. I've done this. I just, I'll see some story on the internet. And I'll say, Oh, that's interesting. And, and maybe do a little bit of research and type some stuff up and maybe even snag some pictures and think I'll put it on Facebook and then put it away. And then I forget I have it. So I was going down through trying to find all my old stories and, and take some of the older ones that are already a done deal and put them into a different folder because my one main podcast folder was getting way too big. This is maybe, maybe more information about podcasting that you ever wanted to hear, but that's, uh, that's how the uh, sausage is made. Sometimes, you know, we've been doing this for five years. You've got so many files. You, I have so many files. It's, it's hard to wade through. So I have to organize them by years after I uh, get done, you know, I got 2016, 2017, 18, 19. And then I, because of the pandemic, I kind of dogged off and I ended up having uh, 20 and 21 and not made an extra folder for. So I just, I did, I was doing that. And I found this one. It's a story of uh, Basil Banghart, who was called the owl. He was an underworld legend back in the uh, early twenties. He was a Chicago guy for you guys from Chicago. I know there's a lot of you out there. 
uh, it's said that his prison escapes back then made him a bigger celebrity than uh, many of the movie stars at the time. And, and he escaped from every prison in the United States, from uh, the federal prison in Atlanta to the state penitentiary in Soledad, California. Uh, he, he, he was a man for all seasons. They said he could drive a train. He could fly a plane. He could shoot a machine gun from a speeding car and pull off mail heists that, that got millions of dollars. And I don't know what kind of, I'm curious about what kind of, uh, how, how they had millions of dollars and via the going via the mail, but it was different back in those days. You know, we, uh, the mail's almost done because of this internet thing. But let's move along. Uh, it was called a professional criminal recidivist with an unfavorable prognosis by a prison sociologist. Uh, he was uh, he was also described as a sophisticated criminal who was astute, well poised, alert, but he had no scruples whatsoever. Uh, his IQ was 107, which I'm not. I know like 140 is way up there. I can't remember why. I remember taking an IQ test. Anybody remember taking an IQ test? I, I know I took one. It seemed like mine was a little bit high, but probably not as high as I'd like to think it was. Uh, I mean, I get by mainly by my uh, my wits and my charm rather than my brains. Uh, I know that. And I have a good work ethic. That helps. You know, you don't have to be so smart if you really have a good work ethic. And that much. My mother, uh, particularly my dad, too, but he died at an early age. My mother gave me a good work ethic. And so it's uh, that serves one well. Um, he was called the owl because he had abnormally large eyes. Uh, he was associated with a man named Gerald Chapman and a uh, George Dutch Anderson. Met them in the federal pen in Atlanta, kind of became, you know, a little robbing crew, if you will, or crime crew. Chapman was older and he took the owl or Basil Banghart under his wing and tutored him in the fine arts of robbing the mail trains and on prison escapes too. Uh, this was uh, at Atlanta. He, uh, he made his first, but uh, only and only unsuccessful escape from Atlanta during that time. He was on a window washing detail he jumped down 25 feet from window is washing into a marshy area. He made it his all the way all the way across the country. I mean, it, it wasn't like they caught him right outside the uh, the walls. He made it all the way across the country to Montana, but he got captured up there and and uh, sent him back. His next escape was with this George Chapman in 1927, and he was arrested in Pittsburgh a year later uh, in 1928. He caught him trying to steal a car. He, this, this is this is slick. This guy was slick. Okay, that 1928 prison escape, they catch him in Pittsburgh. Now, he's being escorted by some U.S. Marshals, and one in particular, he's being escorted back to Atlanta. He somehow, he gets to a telephone, he calls the police, and he gives them the description of the marshal and says that he is the marshal, and he has been... Uh, that the marshal is actually him, the prisoner, and that the uh, the marshal has him handcuffed and holding him prisoner right now and come to the courthouse right now. They were in a courthouse, I believe. Uh, let me check my notes here. Yeah, no, they were in the federal building. Uh, cops get there. He's told him, he said, he's an armed and dangerous felon. And, uh, and a 
police imposter in the past. So the, the cops come flying in, pistols drawn, of course. Uh, they overpower. It wasn't a U.S. Marshal. I'll take that back. It was an FBI agent. They overpower this FBI agent and and uh, take his gun away from him and unhandcuff cuff Mr. Banghart. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion with something like that's going on. And he disappears uh, in the midst of all this confusion. So I can imagine the FBI just going, what the hell is going on here when the local cops comes flying in, guns drawn, and, and order him down on the ground? <laughs> it's, uh, I tell you, this guy's a piece of work. About a year later in uh, uh, Knoxville, he's arrested again, uh, gets sent back to Atlanta, but he escapes again. And he's arrested again in Detroit for armed robbery in 1932. He gets sent back to Atlanta again. Uh, actually, in between time, he is being held in a South Bend, Indiana jail. He escapes by throwing pepper in the guard's face, um, grabs a machine gun and, and shoots his way out. Now, he makes his way to Chicago during this time and there was a, a, a what we call, as you know, in, in Kansas City, a Peckerwood, a non-Italian criminal, professional criminal named Roger Tui. And he goes to work for Roger Tui and, and really takes part in what was known as the Tui Nitty Wars in 1932 and 1933. These wars, I really don't really know a whole lot about it. Some of you guys might really know a lot more of my, my, than I do about it, 1932, 33, 34 said the uh, Nitty organization trapped and killed another one of two of his gunmen, a union extortionist named Jimmy O'Brien. Seven days later, February 8th, 1933, the Tui gang struck back. It was uh, was 15 degrees below zero and snowing. Now, this is Chicago in February, so you know that this is accurate. There's already two feet of snow on the ground. A dark-colored sedan pulls up in front of the garage nightclub where Jimmy O'Brien had been killed. Uh, one man, a taller man, was identified as the Owl or Basil Banghart, wearing a dark coat, dark hat, opened the front door of the club and says, this is for Jimmy, you bastards, and tossed a bomb into the bar room, which blew the place to bits, but didn't really kill anybody. But you know, it scared him. We had something like that in Kansas City uh, at the trap, the, the social clubs that might put a bomb on the back door. They really wasn't designed to kill anybody, but it scared the heck out of him. It sent a message. Now, sometimes you just want to send a message. I, I think he really wanted to kill people here, but certainly sent the message. So here's an interesting story about Basil Banghart. In August of 1933, he had partnered up with a guy named Isaac Costner in the Tui mob. This was a, this guy was a Tennessee moonshiner working for Tui's as an enforcer. And he convinced Banghart that he should meet with what was described as an international con man named John Factor, also known as Jake the Barber, had a great nickname. Isaac Costner had told Banghart that this barber was wanted in England on a bunco conviction, and he needed to avoid extradition by making it look like he had been kidnapped. Uh, Factor promised Costner $50,000 that it would help make the kidnapping look real by picking up the ransom money. Costner asked Banghart to help, and Banghart agreed. He's, he's got, you know, said, hey, man, I can do this. Uh, 
seemed like it was going to be easy deal. He was supposed to just drive up into a forest preserve that, you know, they have those forest preserves all around uh, downtown Chicago, just would, would, back then would have been actually the country. He drives a car back in there and he says, a man in a cab, he's been told that a man in a cab is going to meet you, Basil Banghart, going to meet Basil Banghart, the intersection of Woof and Ogden Roads, and hand him a bag filled with $50,000 in small unmarked bills. Well, when the owl, Basil Banghart, gets there, 250 policemen, it's called them police cadets, sheriff deputies, and FBI agents, two airplanes, 62 squad cars, and 10 machine guns, and a dozen aerial bombs are waiting for him. Banghart and his partner, uh, he had another partner in this guy. I got some nicknames here. Ice Wagon Connor were late picking up this money. They sped into a roadway where this cab with the money was supposed to was waiting. They pulled up the cab's fender, screeched to a halt. This ice wagon Connor jumped out and walked over and there was a policeman driving his cab says, you got a package, a package for Smith. It's plain clothes. Policeman said, yeah, it's here. He handed him a package that had scraps of money in it and waved for the others to move in. Banghart and Connors noticed that something was going on. They realized they were being set up, jumped back in the car and Banghart was driving. And he, he floored it and they raced down the road, ran into a dozen squad cars, backed up, raced down to the other end of the road and another roadblock. Do it in reverse again, but dodging back and forth between roadblocks and this forest reserve, trying to, to find an opening. Um, one point in time, there was a couple of cops in this taxi that had the, the fake ransom money in it, came up behind Banghart's car and started firing a machine gun in it. Didn't really hit anybody. Got right up next to it. Fired another burst with their Tommy gun into it. Still didn't hit it. This was crazy, folks. <laughs> Banghart finally in the end, just like in TV or the movies, he drove his car straight at a roadblock. And the cops backed off and backed out of the way just as he got there. And he bluffed them out, drove into the forest preserve to get underneath airplane, underneath trees to avoid the airplanes above him. And, and then ended up, jumping out of the car it was running and let it crash into a tree and ran back into the woods they split up at that time you know i had i had this happen to me i was chasing a stolen car and i actually knew who was in it uh they were check forgers and i can't remember the guy's name i think one of them was reginald uh the driver was named reginald mcdonald or something like that and this other guy uh was one of his buddies in a check cashing drink, and I was behind him going down, I think it was Mannheim Road, about 39th Street in Mannheim in Kansas City. And yeah, I remember Mannheim. And, and the driver, Reginald, jumped out. And, and the passenger just kind of turned around, looked back at me, and held his hands up in the air, like, you know, I don't know what to do. Car kind of starts angling over and hits a tree. His door pops open and he rolls out and chase him down. I don't know if we ever caught Reginald right then, but, but I caught that passenger. Anyhow, they rolled out of the car, let the car crash into a tree, and they escaped back into the forest preserve. So I, I'm not sure what all that was about. It was just a crazy story in Basil Banghart's life. Over the, In the winter of 1935, after he escapes from this setup, 
Basil Banghart, the owl, joins the Roger Tui gang and planning and executing what would be a large string of mail robberies, one of the largest string of mail robberies in history. In one robbery, uh, he stole $105,000. Remember, this is 1933. It'd be like a million dollars today in Federal Reserve notes from a truck in Charlotte, North Carolina in broad daylight. They were uh, multi-state thieves. He did use a stolen car in his heist, and when he dumped it, that brought the FBI into the case. You know, it was back then the FBI would only enter a case like like a robbery like that unless it was a bank. Uh, This must have been from some truck line hauling these uh, Federal Reserve notes. They'd only entered if it was a a bank, but they had passed a federal statute about not taking cars across state lines. And so once you got in, uh, got a stolen car and it went across the state line, the FBI would enter into the case. They even still had a stolen auto squad when I first came on the police department in the early 70s. It kind of went away pretty quick. After that, I don't remember exactly when it went away. They found this car in Baltimore at a hotel about a month later and they traced it to Basil Banghart, who was still driving it and staying in this hotel. They arrested him, took him back to Chicago, where he was indicted along with Roger Tui and several others for this kidnapping Jake, of Jake the Barber. Uh, the owl had been set up again. Called him to the stand during the factor uh, Jake the Barber kidnap trial. And the prosecuting attorney, Wilbur Crowley, said, what's your occupation, Mr. Banghart? Thief. And the jury laughed and Crowley was confused. The, the attorney, the prosecutor said, what? He said, I'm a thief. I'm steel. That's how I make my living. What was your last residence? 601 McDonough Avenue, Southeast Atlanta, Georgia. Of course, that was the address for the Atlanta federal prison. Called him back to the witness stand to explain that address. Crowley says, why didn't you tell us that you were in prison? Four walls and iron bars do not a prison make, he replied. Flustered the prosecutor, Crowley says, so you escaped from prison, isn't that correct? Banghart indignantly said, uh, no, just the warden says I escaped, but, and Crowley says, well, what do you say? He said, I say that I just left without permission. Well, the point is, Mr. Banghart, Crowley says, you're a fugitive, aren't you? Basil Banghart replies, yeah, you're right. I am a fugitive. From where, sir? Well, hell, son, from justice. (laughs) I'd like to add a video, audio of this and a video. Uh, uh, As you might imagine, the jury had pretty good laugh at the Al's testimony, but they found him guilty anyway. He's given 99 years for his role in this factor kidnapping, plus 31 years for his part in the mail robberies. Now, I would say what happened is they really kidnapped, uh, somebody really kidnapped this factor dude and this Tennessee moonshiner tricked him into as a dupe to picking up the ransom money and somebody had already gone to the police, whoever was supposed to pay the ransom money and alerted the cops there in Chicago. And, and so 
they were waiting and set him up. So there was a real kidnapping. It wasn't just a fake kidnapping. That was kind of a strange story to think about. Some international con artist needs to have a fake kidnapping, make it look real so he didn't have to, won't be extradited back to England. Uh, anyhow, 1942, he's back in prison on this uh, uh, mail robbery deal and the factor kidnapping. Uh, well, actually, before that, he was in a state prison, Menard State Prison, which must be in Illinois. And he escaped once, a short-lived escape, uh, and drove a laundry truck right through the main gates. Sent him back to Statesville which must be a, probably a higher uh, level of penitentiary. I believe I seem like I've heard of Statesville in uh, Illinois. 1942, Basil Banghart escapes prison again, this time with Roger Tui and four others. They went over the uh, walls, uh, said the walls were 45 foot high. I'm not sure how they, they got up or my, I didn't find that. So during daylight breakout, and they're lucky they didn't get shot from the towers. They must've found some way to bribe the, guard or found some weakness in the walls where the guards couldn't see that particular area of the walls. They were recaptured several months later after, you know, these guys, <laughs> they're out drunk. Banghart gets in a fight with one of his fellow escapees, a guy named Matlick Nelson. They got some names. Uh, he gets beaten up by Banghart. He turns himself into the FBI and told the agents everything that they wanted to know and where the rest of the gang were hiding out. Jagger Hoover, even this guy was so well known by this time and Roger Tui and this gang that Jagger Hoover even flew in or took a train. Now, he used to do this whenever they'd have a big arrest going down. He'd tell them to wait until he could get there so he could grab some of the glory and grab the press. Uh, you know, the, the most dangerous place to stand would be between Jagger Hoover and a camera, they said back then. Now, I made that up. I've heard that said about some police officials, though. Don't stand between them and a the microphone. They'll run all over you to get to it. Heck, I might be like that now myself. I wasn't back then. I uh, never had the chance to be a spokesperson for the police department. Uh, anyhow, uh, FBI, Jagger Hoover in charge are all set up at the zero hour. They're getting ready. They're going to go in, turn searchlights on the windows of the apartments, and a loudspeaker cracks out in the silence of the night. Roger Tui and all you other escaped convicts, the building is surrounded. We're about to throw tear gas in the building. Surrender now, and you will not be killed. Well, Basil Banghart wanted to shoot it out. Roger Tui didn't. They debated for about 10 minutes, and finally, I guess Tui won. Banghart yelled out the window, we're coming out. Cops said, then come out backwards, your hands high in the air. And Banghart, you come out first. <laughs> Banghart, wearing only a pair of pants, appeared at the front door, comes out, backs up to the officers. Roger Tuick said he's clad in fire engine red pajamas, followed, jumped on him and knocked him down on the pavement, handcuffed him as usual. Agents rush into the apartment. They find five pistols, three sawed-off shotguns, a 30-30 rifle, and $13,000 in cash. What's interesting about that $13,000, they gave it to a guy named Tubbo Gilbert. The FBI agents gave this cash to Tubbo Gilbert, who was a chief investigator for the state's attorney's office in Illinois at the time. Well, when Gilbert got the cash back, 
he claimed that he only been given $800 by the FBI. At the scene, after two in Banghart were handcuffed, J. Edgar Hoover, of course, surrounded by a dozen agents and, and a dozen or so more newspaper reporters, strolled up to Banghart and said, well, Banghart, you're a trapped rat. The owl burst into a huge smile and said, uh, you're J. Edgar Hoover, aren't you? Yes, Hoover said, I am, with a pleased look on his face. Banghart Nadi said, well, you're a lot fatter in person than you are on the radio. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> January 2nd, 1943, the Owls returned in a massive, heavily armed convoy to his 36th birthday in solitary confinement back in Statesville. Uh, by this time, it said that the state prison system had had enough of Basil Banghart and his death-defying escapes. Uh, he was already becoming a legend among the other convicts, and they figured they needed to make an example of him. Uh, several days after his return to Statesville, they dragged him out. 18 federal marshals came, chained his wrists and ankles, drug him out to the truck or whatever they sent to get him banned, put him on an airplane and sent him out, out to Alcatraz, which is one reason they made Alcatraz was just for guys like this. Uh, it's kind of a stroke of bad luck for Basil Banghart. Now, he could fly a plane, he could drive a car better than anybody, but he never learned how to swim. Out there at Alcatraz, he was assigned to the prison uh, kitchen to kitchen duties with Alvin Creepy Carpus, who was a notorious bank robber, the Ma Barker gang at the time. They were signed in the bakery. Uh, Banghart was later promoted to kitchen clerk, probably because he was uh, cut above the others. Uh, Roger Tui had that same position at Statesville Prison. Became known as the Carpus Kitchen. <laughs> Excuse me, folks. It became known as the Carpus Kitchen Crew. And that was the stuff of convict legend. Uh, of course, they immediately start testing all the boundaries. Uh, Banghart and Carpus make wine out of cherry pit juices or cherry pie juices. Spend most of their time making different kinds of wine after different fruits and getting drunk. And, and the challenge was, Carpus once wrote, to avoid becoming an alcoholic inside the penitentiary. Later on, it had been proven that this John Factor had, in fact, had some piece of this kidnapping deal. And Banghart was transferred from Alcatraz from this federal charge of kidnapping back to Statesville Prison. With his conviction for kidnapping overturned and his 30-year mail robbery sentences dropped for time served. He was now 60 years old in 1960, and, and he strolled out of state prison in Illinois. He had a girlfriend, May Baylock. She had waited for him for 30 years, and she had a very respectable small real estate fortune left to her by an aunt. He lived out, the owl lived out the remainder of his life in relative comfort on a small island in Puget Sound watching the ships go by. Now, that would be pretty expensive to live on Puget Island even back then, I would imagine, in, in uh, or Puget Sound on an island. 
So that's the story of Basil Banghart. It's, <laughs> it's a hell of a story, folks. It is one hell of a story. So don't forget to hit me up on Venmo once in a while. Uh, buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer and uh, maybe on PayPal. Buy me a round of golf then. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.